Well, good morning, everybody. It is so glad to, to see you. Glad you are here. If you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44. As we've been doing the last several weeks, we are making our way through a series on the life of Joseph. The purposes of God in the land of affliction. And uh, we, f- we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 44. Uh, we, we won't have the time, of course, to review everything that's gone on. But, of course, uh, if you're familiar with this story, or even if you're not, that's, that's fine. Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob. He was among 11 other sons born to Jacob. The 10 older brothers decided it was time to get rid of the favored son, so they threw him in a pit, sold him to Midianite traders, where Joseph would eventually find himself in Egypt. Through a series of ups and downs in God's leading and God's providence, Joseph becomes the second ruler of Egypt. And Joseph is is storing up food during seven years of plenty and preparing for seven years of famine, then who comes along but his ten older brothers? They come for food. The one time Joseph commands them that if they want to ever get food again, they have to bring back their youngest brother, who would now have taken the favored child's uh, label and bring him back, because he wanted to make sure that his brothers were indeed honest men and didn't, as they killed the one favored son, him, that he, they didn't also kill the next favored son. And so they're coming back the second time, and they bring Benjamin, and now they're getting ready to return back to the land of Canaan, which is where we find ourselves in chapter 44. I'll read this, you follow along. It says, then he commanded, and this is after they, they partook with him at this massive feast that he held, and so they, they spent the day with him and spent the night, and it says, then he commanded, that's Joseph, commanded the, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away from, with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? Divination is where you, you mix uh, like water and oil in the cup, and you see how the oil separates, and it's, you're supposed to interpret it to determine uh, whether there's going to be uh, prosperity or famine or peace or war and so on and so on. The rest of verse 5, you have done evil in doing this. Verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. So the steward said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. 
Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And it's Judah. He's the key here. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we even clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we, uh, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah said, went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. We went back to our servant, we went back to your servant, my father, and we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go again, buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Or what he's saying there is, in grief, I will go to the grave in grief. Now therefore, Judah goes on, as soon as I come to your servant my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy, to my father, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. After reading this, you may find yourself scratching your head and asking yourself, is this the same Judah? That would indeed be a proper response Could this be the same man we read about earlier who was so malicious and lustful? You'll recall that Judah, or the Judah of chapters 37 and 38, Judah was the malicious mastermind behind the plan to sell Joseph to the Midianite traders. He was the lustful man of chapter 38 who purchased a night with a prostitute not not long after his wife died. 
When we come to chapter 44, we almost almost have to check and see and go back through the list and see, did Jacob name two of his sons Judah? Because certainly this is not the same man. Since when does Judah care about how his father feels? Since when does Judah care about the favored child's suffering? Now Benjamin. Since when does he not care about himself? Since when is he willing to suffer in the stead of others? Since when is he willing to lay down his life so the favored child can go free? The answer, I believe, is since the grace of God laid a hold of him. What else could explain such radical, God-fearing, others-loving, self-sacrificing change? While the author doesn't show us how or give us all the details of this life change, the author makes it obvious. Judah has been changed, and he has been changed by the grace of God. God's grace has done it. It's been 20 plus years since Judah's days of folly, yet God's grace has changed him. The second half of this chapter that we read, chapter 44, contains the final words we hear from Judah directly in the book of Genesis, and what final words they are. And even beyond that, aside from a few verses in chapter 49, this is really the last thing we hear about Judah at all in the book of Genesis. And so the author of the book of Genesis, Moses, he wants to leave us with this picture of Judah, a man changed by the grace of God. I agree with one commentator who suggests that we remember Judah for his courage and compassion, not for his foolish sins. Changed by God's grace. Sadly, our culture knows nothing of this sort of change that God offers, and we wouldn't expect it to. The things of the cross are folly to those who are perishing. I was reminded of a song from one of the highest grossing films put out by Walt Disney Animation Studios. And it sums up the message of our culture well. And the lyrics go like this. We aren't saying you can change him because people don't really change. But throw a little love their way and you'll bring out their best. Bringing out the best is the best we as humans can do. And even then, our best doesn't always look too good. It's often clouded with failures and immorality and mistakes and the the palm-to-the-face sort of moments. America's deity has given its take on our condition and where we go from there. The best you can hope for in this world is a better version of you. That's the message. But is that really the end of the story? Are we really just left to the hopelessness that all all I can achieve in this life is just a better version of me? And that better version of me, as often as I think I might have reached it, never looks that good? Are we left to the hopelessness of being unable to truly change? Can people change? And if it's not within humanity to offer true change, then where is it found? By the grace of God, you can change. And by the grace of God, you can be changed and be freed from the pursuit of just trying to be a better version of you. 
God wants us to be transformed into the image of Christ, and that's the theme of today's message. Our culture says you can't really change, even though some may try to label it as such. Our culture says the only thing you should be shooting for is to become a better version of you. God's word shows us otherwise and gives us unmistakable examples, like Judah, that our goal is not just simply to morph into a better version of me. My goal from God is not just for me to be a better version of me, but to be transformed into the image of Christ. So here's what I want to say this morning. If the grace of God has indeed, in Christ, has indeed changed you, you ought to praise him continually and rely on his grace completely as you pursue Christ's likeness. Because true change is possible. And I want to give you two evidences of being changed by God's grace. Two evidences that Judah showed and two evidences that even you in your life will show if God's grace has truly changed you. Here's the first one. Number one, before God, his hand covered his mouth. Before God, his hand covered his mouth. Let me build up to where we're going with this. The narrative takes a very interesting turn in chapter 44, doesn't it? We leave chapter 30, uh, 43, and the brothers are on like cloud nine. They're happy, they're full, they just had this, this, this all-day kind of party thing with the second ruler of Egypt. They've got their money, they've got their food, they've got all this, and certainly they're rejoicing, and they're in good spirits after a night of feasting with the second ruler of Egypt. And so they're sent on their way the next morning. And no doubt they're relieved that the worst is behind them. So they think. I mean, they had Simeon, they had Benjamin, the new favored son. They had the food, and all that's left is their return journey back home. Little did they know that Joseph ordered his steward to place his silver cup used for divination in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. Framing Benjamin as a thief. Joseph is testing his brothers. He's trying to close the case on trying to discern if they were actually changed men, men of integrity, that they claimed to be just a couple chapters ago. And Benjamin is the bait. Oh, the joys of being the youngest child. So the steward catches up to the group. And they're not far outside of town, and he begins to accuse them of stealing something of immense importance and value to the second ruler of Egypt. And so what do the brothers do? They immediately begin to defend themselves against this accusation. Why? Because they actually were right. They didn't steal anything. And so they give the evidence. Right? They came back to Egypt the second, second time, and they brought money for the food that was returned the first time. I mean, for someone who does that, why, why would they bring extra money back and try to be honest and then go steal something? This doesn't make sense. And so they were so confident that none of them stole the silver cup that they proposed their own punishment. And they are way overconfident without even realizing it. They don't get together and talk. Each one of them are so convinced that the others are innocent that they say, okay, here. We're so confident that none of us has stolen this silver cup that you say we stole. That here's here's our proposal. Whoever is found with the cup will be killed. And then the other ten of us will return with you and will be your slaves. 
And so the steward, again, one of my favorites among the supporting cast of this story, he says, okay, that's what we'll do. Whoever is found with it will be the slave, and the other ten of you will go free. I'm sure the brothers are thinking that's not at all what we said. And it's not what the brothers proposed, but it was gracious of the accuser to hand down a lighter sentence than the accused gave themselves. So they, so they do it. They all unload their sacks. Starts with the beginning, uh, at the beginning with the oldest. Reuben, nothing. Simeon, nothing. Levi, nothing. Judah, nothing. Dan, nothing. Naphtali, nothing. Gad, nothing. Asher, nothing. Issachar, nothing. Zebulun, nothing. Now it's Benjamin's turn. And sure enough, there it was. Now how are the brothers going to respond? That's the question immediately after they find the cup in Benjamin's sack. What happens now? Now if these were the same men, if Judah was the same man as in chapter 37, you know what they would have said? Tough luck. How's it, how do you like being the favored child now, Benjamin? We'll see you later. We're out of here. No. The brothers tear their clothes. In Genesis 37, they tear the robe off of Joseph in order to bring him harm. Here, they tear their own clothes at the thought of harming, harm coming to Benjamin and to the father Jacob. They're not sitting down for a meal this time like they did in chapter 37 as Joseph cried out from the pit. Here, they refuse to stand idly by while their brother faces harm. And so they return to Joseph's house. And Joseph's asked the question, why, why would you do such a thing? And here's where Judah steps forward. And I want you to know what Judah says. In verse 16 and in verse 18. He says, and Judah, here's how he responded to Joseph. Judah said in verse 16, what shall we say? Or what shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. This is where we see the first evidence of change from Judah. He puts his hand over his mouth. He says, what can I say? What am I going to speak in this moment to make all this go away? He was standing before Joseph on earth, but he realized that ultimately he stood before God in heaven. And he doesn't even, notice, he doesn't even attempt to address the whole silver cup debacle. He stands there before God and Joseph and says, what shall we say, what shall we speak? Our guilt has been found out by God. He knew at that moment, in addition to standing before a man, he also stood before God. And more than being called to answer for the silver cup, he was being called to answer for his sin of 20 plus years earlier. And there he stood before God with his hand over his mouth in a position of submission and humility. What am I possibly going to say to clear myself? I put my hand over my mouth. I met a man recently as I was on a walk in Mount Pleasant. And in the course of our conversation, I eventually asked him the question of where he'll spend eternity and his response to that question was to tell me about his relationship with God. 
and he went on to explain that he, he prays multiple times a day. And he, and he even went further than that. He started to tell me about what it is that he prays to God when he does pray. And what he told me, you know, and, and how he explained it to me, it was a prayer of him telling God a lot of things about him. And how he deserves certain things from God. But this man's greatest responsibility that I met here in the streets of Mount Pleasant, and our greatest responsibility as we stand before God, is to put our hand over our mouths. That isn't to say we shouldn't pray or that we shouldn't bring our needs to God. It means that when it comes to our standing before God, we shut up about our personal goodness and righteousness. We cast aside our excuses for sin, our self-justifications, our merits, and our arguments for why we deserve better. It means we stand there before God and we see him, we behold him, seated on the throne, the righteous judge. When our mouths are closed, our eyes will open and we'll see him, his goodness and majesty, his holiness and grace, his goodness and majesty, his glory and faithfulness and sovereignty. We should be like Job, who when God called him to answer for all the things he said, Job says in Job chapter 40, verse 4, he says, what am I going to answer? I put my hand over my mouth. We must fall on our faces with the mindset of Isaiah who said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. We must heed the words of the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. One of the first signs of God's changing grace is not that we are comfortable with God, but that we are accountable before God. A better version of you, a better version of me, will never see God this way. It takes the grace of God to stand before God in such humility. There's a second evidence that I want us to look at. From Judah. Before God, his hand covered his mouth, yet before others, his heart cherished their well being. The rest of the chapter is uh, verses 18 to 34. The rest of the chapter is Judah's speech. As a matter of fact, verses 18 to 34 is the longest recorded human speech in the entire book of Genesis. And so just prior to this speech, as, uh, as, as it says in verse 17 and 18, remember Joseph, what he says, uh, you know, Judah says, hey, we're, we're, we can, we're, we'll all be your servants. The entire group would never see their families again, no phone call home, no heads up, that's it. Judah here being willing to give up his life to stay with Benjamin, the favored son, but Joseph refuses the offer. And he says, only the one found with the cup would serve as a slave. And then he tells him this. This is the climax of chapter 44. When Joseph says at the, at the uh, end of verse 17, only the one in whose hand the cup shall be found will be my servant, but as for you, go in peace. Go in peace. 
Go in peace as their brother is ripped away from his family. Go in peace with the money and food in hand. Go in peace as the favored one suffers. What change is found in Judah? A little over 20 years earlier, he did go in peace as his brother was ripped away from his family. He did go in peace with money in hand. He did go in peace as the favored one suffered, suffering at his demand even. What was once hatred for the most loved has turned to concern. Judah, once jealous of the favored one, now jealous for the favored one. Judah, once conspiring against his brother, now contending for his brother. Judah used to see the favored son as a problem to eliminate. Now he sees him as a person to value. He once stripped the clothes from the favored son. Now he tears his own clothes at the thought of losing Benjamin. At one time he sold his brother away. Now he refuses to leave his brother's side. Before he was willing to sacrifice for personal gain. Now he's willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. I'm not sure there are many things as spectacular and stunning in either personal experience or public expression as a man or woman changed by the grace of God. Now, Judah's speech has three parts. The first part, you know, Judah recalls his conversation with Joseph. And he actually places, Judah's actually placing the weight of responsibility for why Benjamin was even there in the first place on Joseph. Because, in fact, it was Joseph who called him back. And then the second part, Judah recounts the conversation between him and his father when they returned from Egypt the first time. And Judah is is making it crystal clear to Joseph that Benjamin is loved. And that losing Benjamin would 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 bring death to his father. And he is pleading for Benjamin's life. Now the third part, verses 30 through 34, is the point of the whole passage. It's the point of Judah's whole speech. The third part of Judah's speech is the main purpose for everything he is saying. And it's the part that touched the heart of Joseph the most. And he says in verse 33, Now therefore, please let me stay instead of Benjamin. Let the boy, and he uses the word boy, he probably was in his late 20s, maybe even 30s. Let the boy go back with his brothers. There is hardly another moment in scripture except the cross that is as tender and compassionate and heartbreaking and moving as this. In the first two parts of Judah's speech, he wasn't just giving information. Judah was building a case before Joseph as to why Benjamin should be set free and he should take his place. In one moment, Judah surrendered everything. He surrendered ever seeing his family, his kids, his grandkids again. In one moment, he said, Benjamin's life is worth more than my own. This wasn't a better version of Judah. 
This was a changed Judah. Judah didn't follow a bunch of life coaches to help him bring out his best. Without a doubt, this Judah was changed by the grace of God. This was a Judah that even looked a whole lot like his God. This is a Judah who looked like he had been conforming to the image of God. Compassionate, loving, gracious, merciful, willing to sacrifice. This is the last thing we see of Judah. It's change. But it's not the last we see of Judah's family. Because in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14 it says, It is evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah. Jesus, like Judah, yet eternally greater and eternally more sufficient, would lay down his life. But it's for those who hated him, for his enemies. Jesus would take the place, but take the place of sinners. And by his death and resurrection, Jesus provided a way for his enemies to be forgiven and adopted into God's family. That's change. That's change. When you go from being an enemy of God's to being part of God's own family. Jesus didn't die to produce a better version of you. Jesus didn't die to purchase a better version of me. Jesus died to change you. To change your heart, to change your future, to change your identity, to change your desires, to change your attitude towards God and man. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the Christian life this way. Quote, what is a Christian? Just a good man? Somebody who is just a little bit better than somebody else? Not at all. He is like Christ. Conformed to the image of God's Son. How can a man who is dead in trespasses and sins raise himself up to that? It's impossible. By grace ye are saved, not of yourselves, no boasting. No man can attain to this. No man can raise himself to this. It is God's work and God's work alone. The Christian is one who is meant to be like Christ. He goes on to say, he has the life of Christ within him. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. What is Christianity? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, end quote. We often say things, don't we, like, I wish I was a better mom. I wish I was a better dad. I wish I was a better wife or a better husband. I wish I was a better Christian. I wish I was a better woman. I wish I was a better man. And we feel the hopelessness of being just better versions of ourselves. We often are tempted to abandon ourselves to self-improvement formulas, to recovery programs, to moralism and medication, yet the key to change is Christ. It's the gospel. We must resist the insufficient philosophies and definitions of America's version of change in all its many forms. Because you can be sure that woven throughout the commercials, the media, the social influencers, the books, the articles, the politics, the posts, the memes, the satire, the arts, the sports, the advertisements, and beyond, there is a version of change. And it comes with its own goal of change, its own source of change, its own reason for change, and where you find the power to change. The goal of change is usually just that, you needing to be a better version of you. 
The source of change usually is you, me. It's somewhere within us. The power to change is us. And if you don't feel like you have it in you, then you go follow a, follow a social influencer. You follow someone who seems to be getting it right or a life coach or a motivational speaker. And their job is to empower you to help you become a better version of you. And the reason for all of this and for this quote-unquote change is that you feel better about you, that you are a confident you. I don't want to be a better version of me. I want to be as one who has been brought from death to life, presented to God as an instrument for righteousness. I don't want to just be a better version of me, yet still dominated by sin, but instead one who has been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And where the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't want to be a better version of me. I want to be as one who stands before God with the fear of God, hand over my mouth, knowing I can't clear myself, excuse myself, or save myself, yet holding in my possession a treasure, a treasure that I found in a field, and with joy I went and sold everything I had to gain it, Jesus Christ. I want to possess within me Christ, the great treasure, the one who cleared my debt of sin, set it aside, nailed it to the cross. Just a better version of me goes to hell. So I want to be found in Christ, not having whatever righteousness is found in a better version of me, but having Christ's righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus, the Son of God. And by the grace of God, we can be changed into something far greater than just better versions of ourselves. By the grace of God, we can be changed into the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, you, me, we can give up just trying to be a better version of ourselves and pursue something higher and greater, conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, those whose faith is in the Son of God are being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. And for all who find that true of their lives, we ought to praise him continually and rely on his grace completely as we pursue Christ's likeness. By the grace of God, all I have is Christ. All to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Father, I pray that amazing grace would be amazing to us. Help us abandon, Lord, Me just trying to be a better pastor, a better father, a better man, a better Christian. Conform us, God, into the image of Jesus. And may those who don't know Jesus this morning find in you the righteousness they need. And by faith in you, receive it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.